It is a cool April day. Spring has taken a firm grip on the area as the hills turn solid green from the new grass springing up after the last rain. The stagecoach has turned off its normal rutted road to a far more rutted road. Inside Benjamin's suite, the postmaster of Benicia, California, wonders what's happening. After just a few moments, the coach stops. Benjamin looks outside to see a small boy. The coach driver asks the boy, where's your mum? Just then, a stately woman wearing what is obviously her finest clothes steps forward out of the shade of a willow tree. Some words are said, but Benjamin can't hear them. But he does notice the woman's face beginning to blush. The driver hands her two letters, says something else, which Benjamin cannot hear, and the stage begins its journey again. Live from Room C of the Rutherford B. Hayes Memorial Studio, this is the award-winning stamp show here today, episode number 298. Brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center, a nonprofit 501c3 corporation for the advancement of philately. This is Cash. This is Mark. This is Albert. This is Jim. This is Jim Forty. We have Jim number one and Jim number two. So this week we are going to be discussing again the ex- our experts topic. Today it is covers and cover repairs and cover faking. So Jim number two, Jim Forty. First of all, uh, give your uh, shop a plug. Or uh, your I have two websites, PostalHistory.com, covers postal history of the world, although mostly U.S., and StampsDashPlus.com, which has stamps of the world. So as a cover expert, mm-hmm. um, tell us about cover repairs. We want to know about cover repairs and fixing and faking and things like that. Well, the first thing you need to look at when you're looking at a cover and what repairs may or may not have been done and what you know what what is acceptable in repairs is what is the cover showing what is the purpose of the cover if the cover is to show a postal marking a damage stamp isn't going to mean very much if a cover is to show a rate or a stamp usage a damage stamp is going to be significant if you're showing you know, an airmail cover to an unusual destination and it's reduced an eighth of an inch, no one's much going to care. If you're showing a piece of rare postal stationery, that eighth of an inch reduction would be, would be unacceptable. So that's really what it comes down to. Um, you know, cover repairs are, are generally accepted and they're quite common. It just depends on what's being repaired and and why it's being repaired. I mean, most repairs are to make covers look better, and that's generally considered a good thing. Um, repairs that are meant to be, you know, m- meant to be deceptive are generally a bad thing. So what, how do you repair a cover from the, de- we're, this is, we're trying to warn people what to do, or excuse me, the purpose of this is to warn people of how to avoid being quote-unquote ripped off. Well, okay, so one of the most common ways you repair a cover is to reduce it because people open covers often don't pay much attention to how they're open, so you get a ragged edge. 
So the way you tell if it's been reduced is you look at the back of the cover and you can see the, the way the flaps line up and you can tell whether it's been reduced and you can determine whether or not that is significant for you. Another thing that you can commonly do to a cover and is generally considered a positive is to clean it with an eraser. I mean, you'd be shocked at how much dirt you can get off a cover, not to mention all of the you know, endless old prices you find. Another, another thing you'll see is the covers will often get pressed so that you know, it'll, take, it'll, it'll make small creases less visible, maybe even possibly completely ignore them. I mean, completely make them invisible, but you know, it generally makes the cover look better. Those are important things. Now, and like I say, it depends on what, you, what you're looking for in a cover. It also depends on whether you're exhibiting. With, in postal history, rarity is common. And rarity always trumps condition. So it's, you know, the, the kind of repairs you see on a stamp where there's multiple copies of the same stamp are not as significant on a cover because there may be only two or three or sometimes only one example of a given postal marking. There may just be a couple of dozen examples of a particular rate. And if you're exhibiting where the visual aspect of the hobby is at its zenith, then you're going to want to make sure the cover looks good. So you'll see possibly some minor reduction, certainly erasing, and possibly some pressing. I mean, so you know, I think that those are generally acceptable, and most people think that they're positive. The worst thing you see done with covers is this is a you know what typically it happens in the U.S. too, but mostly in Europe. The addition of stamps in the classic era on a stampless cover. And it's especially difficult on countries which had a separate postmark and a separate canceling device. A lot harder to do when there is, when the stamp is, is canceled by the postmark, because then you got to somehow get the cancel on the stamp where you've added, where you, or on the cover where you've added the stamp. Um, then, you know, I mean, I've seen covers made out of whole cloth. I mean, you know, they take an envelope, put on fake stamps, cancel them with fake markings, type in a fake address. I don't think those fool very many people. Well, let's get to uh, the one that here at PSE we probably see more than any others, stamps put on stampless covers. Because stampless covers are relatively inexpensive. You can buy a stampless cover for maybe five bucks, mm -hmm. 10 bucks. The stamp that they usually put on it it's usually kind of damaged. It's a doggy-looking stamp, so they put it on the cover to enhance the value. Well, How do you tell well, if I a mean, stamp belongs on that cover? Here's one example. It was pretty easy. Someone came over with a, a manuscript cancel from Bastrop, Texas, with a pair of number ones on it. Number ones from Texas are very, very rare. So I opened it up, put it up to the light, and right underneath where the stamps was, it said, in manuscript, paid. Or actually, it had the rate. I don't remember the rate. Probably was ten cents. So you know, took the stamps off, sold the stamps, and then sold the stampless cover for what it is. <laughs> but what you, what you're going to want to do is there are different markings, and you have this is where you need to know your stuff as a postal historian. There are different markings that are associated with a paid cover from an unpaid cover, and then of course there are some covers that are paid part of the way and are unpaid the rest of the way. You can't always send a fully paid cover overseas in, this, in much of the stampless period from the US, for example, so you can only pay just so much. 
But that, you know, the best way to determine that is, first of all, look. Look to see what the stamp might or might not be covering from the back with the high-intensity light, and then look to see whether the rates and the markings on the cover made sense if there was a stamp prepaying part of the postage. So if a person is, let's say, a beginner or moderate collector, that second part is sort of an advanced yeah. thing. Yeah, can, then, we give, can we give a sure, couple the, pointers? Then you're going to want to hope to find a, a cover that where the franking is tied and preferably tied by a postmark as opposed to a cancel. Cancels are generally fairly easy to fake because oftentimes they're just kind of color blobs. Postmarks are much harder to fake. So that would be the easiest, that, that was kind of the easiest way to tell. And, you know, and, and that's frankly the way a lot of, you know, expert committees will make a determination. I had a group of tr high value treasury stamps on legal size cover, and all, none of them were listed in Scots as having an on-cover price, I thought they all looked like they could belong based on the, the wear patterns on the cover. One a little trick about whether a stamp belongs on a cover, for example, if it's paying a three or four ounce rate, look at the edge of the cover. It meant it had something heavy in there. Make sure there's the appropriate wear. Make sure the paper is frayed. Anyway, they all got bad certs. Mm. No one believed him. <laughs> well, one of the things, if I can add in, because this is the period that I love to collect, a cover that was sent up until 1857 when they required everything I think after it was that. was 1855. Or, excuse me, 1850. You're right. Ah, oh, God, I got, I got called out <laughs> on my own uh, exhibit. On your own collection. <laughs> ah, you're right, though, 1855, July 1st, 1855. Before that date, it either had a stamp or a number or a number and the word paid mm -hmm. so if you have a cover that has the number three on it and then it also has a stamp chances are that stamp does not belong on that cover and that works in the reverse if you see a cover that doesn't have some sort of paid or rate marking probably means the stamp is missing yep so I was going to say that that's one of the things that you, you see an awful lot on covers mm -hmm. is the original stamp is not there. And it is then replaced by another stamp. And there's interesting ways to figure the, those out. Jim's alluded to them by talking about the postmark and, and whether or not it's tied. But that is also a uh, form of enhancement. Yeah, well... <clears throat> I helped you do that with one. I found yes. a stamp that oh. sort of fit onto the cover. Mm -hmm. it, we, it was not to fake it. It yeah. was to add eye appeal to it. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that one for a minute. We're, we're talking about an 1850s use from Fort Bridger, Utah Territory. The, the stamp had been canceled by the uh, CDS, so part of the CDS was missing because the stamp was missing. And we found a stamp that had a similar curved CDS, um, didn't match anything else, that certainly didn't match the missing portion of Fort Bridger. Oh, it certainly would not fool no, anyone. No, but to look at the cover, and for me as the collector, part of the appeal of the, the cover was that it was addressed to the man who ran the fort. 
Mm. The the his name was Carter, and so uh, it kind of had significance historically. Um, so the stamp was somewhat. Um, it wasn't complete. It, it, it to wasn't the story. complete to the story, and it but it makes it look a little bit better, and it also obviously decreases the value of the cover as a collectible, because the stamp has been added. Yeah, you know there are comp there are people and maybe even companies that do restoration of both stamps and covers, but especially covers. And one of the things that they generally make sure they do is to make sure their work isn't too good. They want to make sure that it, you can always know that it was restored. Well, Albert, you well, had... I have, I have a quick question for Jim, number one. Why was the original stamp removed? Okay. Um, my, name, my last name is not one. <laughs> Jim Gamut. <laughs> I just didn't give that when we were talking. Um, I have no idea... It, 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 I bought it with the stamp removed. I paid very little for it because the stamp was removed. Was it a ten cent rate or a three cent? Rate? It was a three cent rate. Well, that's crazy then. Yeah, and and that's so they nice destroyed about. a multi hundred dollar cover well, by removing a fifty cent stamp. Sometimes the stamps come off. Just they come off. They, 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 they age right. and it just comes off from age. Other times collectors will remove them because they want to collect the stamp. Um, this gets kind of to our discussion about what's more important, the postmark or the stamp. Um, Fort Churchill, Nevada Territory, um, three covers known. It, it only had a post office for one year in 1860, 1861. Um, there's three known. They're all manuscript. Every one of them has had the stamp cut off of it. Somebody collected the stamps and cut the corner off. So every one of those rare, rare post offices has the same damaged corner. Rarity trumps condition. Exactly. So if you want to have that one, that you have that. And most of the, uh, the three that I've seen all had the stamp replaced over that missing piece of paper. They put a backing in it, and you put the stamp back on it but it definitely won't fool anybody. Well, the intention is not to fool people. The intention is just to add eye appeal. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but sometimes it's just it's just normal wear. I mean, covers it covers normally have been have been stuck away in the attic or in the basement and uh, sometimes they're mm -hmm. it's, they're not well uh, weather protected. Um, I'm sure that uh, all of us have been in a place where They've they've been uh, the paper when you t you you take it out of the box it smells because it's uh, it has acid in there or it has uh, it has insect damage lots of stuff lots of covers early covers I think has has been insect damage silverfish roach damage sometimes even mice and rats eating have, have eaten the edges off of covers so it's it's normal to have damage it's very rare actually to find a, a cover that's that's a over a hundred years old that's in pristine condition it, that's usually because it's been put in a book or sort uh, uh, some sort of a scrapbook or something and kept in a place that it's kept in a place that's relatively nice yep. um, covers from Hawaii in general have uh, they always have that smell that uh, the smell of mold and the smell of uh, 
Um, yeah, it's it's a constant problem. So if you collect collect stamps or stamps or postal history in, in the islands, you have to keep it in a room that's temperature controlled and humidity controlled. Uh, otherwise, you you get uh, you get stuff that has brown spots all over it. Yeah, well, we've talked about the problems with the colors changing from oxidation and sunlight changes the color of the stamps and so forth. And I think that what Albert's talking about as a cover collector and I think cover collectors need uh, would agree that there's certain damage that's done to the cover that actually authenticate that it's an old cover because you don't find them if they're not in some way nibbled or you know edge edge wear edge tear a little bit well here I'm going to give out a little uh, shout out for the book of secrets number three yes because inside of it we talk about iron gall ink and the ink actually will eat the paper Mm -hmm. and so you have that sort of thing where and i've seen a lot of covers where you know the writing has destroyed the paper and that's from this iron gall ink that was relatively common back then and ink is actually something that's important because there were people that created fake manuscripts for western towns and the way that they were discovered is because they use modern plastic based ink as opposed to the more typical vegetable based ink that you would see at the time that these covers were purported to be. Oh that's one of the big benefits of being able to expertize this stuff is when you have the proper equipment and it's not real expensive you know it's like UV lights and a little bit of knowledge of how to use them you can detect new ink versus old ink. And that's a really great way to, you know, authenticate covers, whether they are real or not real. This is a good place to talk about the Hoffman forgery. Um, the Net- Netflix is running that uh, sp- uh, special now, three-part series on murder among the Mormons. And they talk about the master forger, Mark Hoffman. Hoffman created... Um, documents and uh, autographs of famous people and uh, Americana in general but his specialty was Utah Mormonism stuff and this cover that uh, we've seen here in uh, PSE is a Hoffman forgery, it's probably the only cover that he forged but it was um Discovered mainly because the provenance went back to Mark Hoffman. Prior to that, it had been accepted as legitimate by everybody who had looked at it. And um, and this had the nickname of the Salamander cover, right? Well, that, that, that was a, no, that was the one that got people killed. That 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 was the basis of the murders, and actually, that the discovery of that. W- salamander letter as being a forgery is what led to this one being discovered as a forgery because of the ink. Now Hoffman um, you got to understand that prior to him actually being convicted or admitting to the murders um, his forgeries had fooled the FBI lab had fooled Cal uh, I think it was Caltech laboratories that had run tests on the inks and paper um, so he really understood the craft of, and, and he used an ink 
that was from the regular formulas that were available in books and so forth that talked about ink making back in the 1850s. But he couldn't age it properly. Hence, he had to accelerate the aging process, and that led to a breaking up of the ink into what they called the alligator in ink, little break patterns in the ink. And so the cover now has a um, bad PFC certificate, um, but the, the interesting thing about it for me is that it shows you it had provenance. He had established a provenance for it that was pretty impeccable. And so all of the things that we normally would look at in a cover – this cover would have passed. Hmm. We, you have to have it under 100-power microscope to see the alligator in, in the ink. I've got a 30-power glass, and I can't see it in a, under 30. Well, now that you have a certified genuine forgery, right? <laughs> what is the value compared to if it were real? Well, probably because the man that created it is a notorious psychopathic murderer. I would say it's probably worth more than what it would have been otherwise. <laughs> but it was a straight line, Salt Lake City, Great Salt Lake City, California, which was the official post office in 1849. So, you know, I don't know, that's several thousand dollars, I suspect. The, the, original, the ones that do exist, and there are some, they're all manuscript. This one was a typeface. But the the clever part of the typeface was that it was the same typeface that was used in the uh, original banknotes that were printed in Salt Lake in 1849. So, so Jim, how did he get the typeface? Well, he had access to the church historical uh, office or archives, and apparently he took it and made the type, took the typeface out, made the imprint, put the typeface back. Showed some people the cover while it was in the, he planted the cover in the archives. So it comes out of the church historical archives, which obviously is a very powerful um, provenance. Went through a famous dealer and collector in Utah named Lamar Peterson. And um, yeah, so like I said, the provenance, everything that we would normally look at a cover Mm -hmm. and judge it by, was correct on this cover. And it was only when the ink became suspect that people started examining the ink and found um, anomalies in the cover and the ink. Interesting. Well, I mean, you know, most fake covers are pretty easy to tell, except when they're not, then they're really, really hard to <laughs> yeah. tell. And, and there have been some that have recently been, uh, by recently, I'd say in the last 20, 25 years, that go back into collections... Uh, a hundred years ago, um, was it the Klep, Klepoff, um, Kaploff, Kaploff with the with the three five cent uh, from New Orleans and stuff that you know recently have been discovered with modern techniques that had been accepted as legitimate for years yeah. and years. One of the other problems, though, we Mark and I attended an auction in Petaluma in January, and uh, you can give H.R. Harmer a shout out. No, it no, was Harmer Shaw. Excuse me, Harmer Shaw. Oh, 
but oh my done. But uh, unfortunately, I got my homers confused. Uh, unfortunately, they had Hubert Skinner's reference collection that was being sold as large lots, including a number of a number of fakes of very high value 1869 covers that were ex Knapp and ex Gibson, mm-hmm. but were all but were all counterfeit. They had a number of them had Ashbrook's actual notes saying that the rate doesn't make sense. But the fact is, is that um, a couple of us were ready to put up about two or three thousand dollars to take it off and send it to uh, operation to Operation Scrap, which the Philatelic Foundation has. But no, the lot brought well over five thousand dollars net, and obviously it's going to be sold to somebody, which is yeah. very unfortunate. Yeah, th- there's a there's a lot of um, covers probably in the Western Express area, which is. Uh, one of the books I did was on Nevada uh, Express covers, but in researching that book, um, I, I looked at a lot of Western covers, uh, Express covers, and there's an awful lot of those that are, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but there are some that have been respected, collected, been in famous collections like you mentioned, and uh, I think most modern postal historians would say they're fake. Hmm. You know, there's also, a, uh, with fancy cancels, there's a reference book uh, called Hearst Zareski, which, you know, t- was part, partly authored by Herman Hearst, who was a very beloved philatelic author, but Zareski was the one who put it together, and he put it together to put his own fakes in there into the reference so that people would believe they're real. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. He was, a, he was a French collector dealer, Michael Zareski. And uh, yes, uh, when he it was being compiled in the late 40s, people thought that he was doing it honestly, but it it basically kept, made the book almost useless. Wow. So Jim, you mentioned erasing. Yes. So tell people about erasing, how to clean their well, covers. The, the number one thing you want to get rid of is, number one is all the old prices, and number two, all kind of extraneous material. Um, now, a lot of that is because I'm a dealer and I see a you know a five dollar price on the cover that I'm asking twenty dollars for. You know that's I don't want to, I don't want people to see that. But you can also remove soil by erasing, and that just gives the cover an overall brighter appearance. What you want to try to do is get a pl- a plastic eraser, which has which is generally speaking not terribly abrasive. And you can often do wonders for a cover. I've even seen like bags of eraser material, but I never found those to be too effective. Well, what I use is the white rectangular ones. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Don't use the one on the back of a pencil. That's not a good one. Yeah, Yeah, it's too abrasive. And sometimes you can even get ones that are like clear or translucent, but those have a harder time erasing. The most important thing to remember is to be very careful of the stamp. Yeah. You, know, you can all of a sudden be erasing too hard and tear, tear something. There I goes can, the stamp. Or can, you can tear the cover. Well, well that's one less the, likely, but yes, you could. One of the things that I've found that works real well is when you're erasing, do it all in one yeah. direction. Don't go back and forth. You go all in one direction. Otherwise, if you're going back and forth, you can wrinkle the cover. You yeah, can do yeah. a lot of things. The other thing I would say is that every once in a while a cover will have some notation on the back of it from somebody 
that was yeah, an expert. Ashbrook wrote Ashbrook. paragraphs no. on almost <laughs> yeah, yeah. every cover. And, and I, I leave those on, yeah. my covers. Yeah. And I think that, you, and so you, again, it, when you're collecting, you will get to the point as a collector, you will know whether that's good or not. But as a person who's selling it, and, and I do some erasure work on things that Jim is selling, mm. and I try to leave those kinds of things on there because I think they add to the yeah. collection. The, the other thing you always want to leave on a cover is if someone is penciled in the name of the town on your manuscript, cancel. Oh, yes. Yeah, because, boy, is it tough sometimes to read these old cancels, so, manuscripts. So how about pressing? You also mentioned pressing. Well, yeah, I mean, I've mostly done it on modern covers. Um uh, you know, I, uh, steam iron sometimes does wonders, you know, especially with the light airmail onion skin paper. You can, you know, it, it has a tendency to kind of crumple and you can flatten it out. And it works pretty well. Now, I mean, there are a lot of high end 19th century covers have absolutely been pressed. I mean, it'd be, you know, I see a lot of 1850s and 60s covers and then when I look at a five hundred or a thousand dollar cover, and oh yeah, that's been pressed because that's not what they look like. I mean, you know, the other issue too is is that you know people who seriously collect classic U.S. material, you know, that's something you can do easily on a budget. They have a lot of money and they know it's going to cost a fortune, so you know they certainly will pay for the quality. But yeah, they absolutely, they they absolutely get pressed. I would be. I don't think I would really try that on a, on an early cover, but you know I've got an airmail cover on airmail paper from the late '40s or early '50s, and it's all crunched up. You can you know a little bit of steam and an old iron will make it so that you can barely tell there were any creases. Well, one of the things that is kind of lucky for stamp collecting is uh, covers are restored. That you yes. can send them off and get them restored. It is incredibly expensive, though. Yeah, to do it professionally costs hundreds of dollars. Although I will say there is a, a, a woman who does it in England who costs a lot less than the people who do it here in the United States. <laughs> and I can't remember her name or her web address, but she did do an episode on another philatelic podcast. I, I was just going to add. She, she was uh, on uh, conversations yes. with Philatelic? I, I saw that it was one. A she, yeah. Or she. Yeah, I, I yeah. remember seeing that one. I forget her name too. I would I was just wanted to add that um that kind of repair on covers is um equivalent, I guess, to repairing a painting. Yeah. You know? Um Oh, they don't fake not, anything. Yeah. They just not, clean it up. Not that it's not that it's um makes you know, we're talking a lot a lot more money on a several hundred million dollar or ten yeah. million dollar painting to restore it but yeah it, it's it's that kind of restoration that um it's not done to deceive it's done to preserve mm -hmm. but some of these like you talked about the ink destroying the paper and some of the paper itself will destroy the stamps paper will destroy the, the paper yeah yeah because of the acid in yeah it. so there's way, a lot of tech they, they have the technology now to preserve those things yeah, yeah the there last thing is to yeah. deacidify paper yes. they're not easy no the one that is a matter of fact i were you the one who sent it was it a hawaii cover that went in no and they had to deacidify the paper no that was uh, the 10 cent coil on on the registered cover oh yeah um, yeah 
Yeah, so so uh, they basically was, rebuilt the cover, right? They yeah. had to rebuild the, the. They had they had. It wasn't totally rebuilt. There was only one little area that was rebuilt. Mo- it was mostly intact, but it, what it had to be done is it had to be professionally deacidified because it was only there's only four covers known with the ten cent nineteen oh nine coil, and uh, this is. Um, this was used on July sixteenth, nineteen oh nine, which is within ten days of the only of the earliest known use. And it was a, it was one stamp dealer, Economist Stamp Company, sending a, sending some stamps to another stamp dealer in Washington D.C. Yeah. So the uh, how they do it is they remove they actually remove the stamp, they will soak the cover, and it it fall you know the um, flaps come off, so. You basically, you have you reduce it to one big piece of paper. Then they treat it. Then they fold it all back and put the stamp back on it. And if they didn't do that, literally, as, after some period of time, which wouldn't be that long, the cover would be so fragile that it would start to flake apart, and it would totally destroy the stamp. Yeah. During World War One. Most of the envelopes that were used by soldiers was very cheap, highly acidic paper, and the num—I mean, the number of covers that are collectible are decreasing every year as they crumble. Yeah. Some some of the most famous Hawaiian covers, including the uh, two cent and five cent Hawaiian missionary cover, that was actually found in a furnace. They were go- they were going to burn it. That's the famous Dawson correspondence, and the. Uh, the cover with the strip of three missionaries is part of the National Postal Museum collection now. That cover has been entirely rebuilt because it was literally charred when they found it. Yeah, and the, and the expense to do that almost precludes it from being done with a more common oh, yeah, usage. Yeah. yeah, and aren't a number of the missionary covers have this, have a number of the missionary covers, the stamps were taken off and moved because the missionaries were applied on top of the U.S. stamp. And so to make the cover more attractive, they move the stamps. That could be the end. Well, that's been, that's done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, the $99 question. Picture a cover that is worth $99. But then they find out that the cover has been erased. A lot of stuff has been erased. What does that cover now become valued at? Well, a lot depends on what you're trying to show with the cover. Most of the covers, it's still worth $99. Um, I mean, erasing done well is a, almost, I mean, I can't, you can always tell it's been erased, but it's not going to affect. The real key is what are you showing with the cover? And, you know, there's, there are different levels of repair, not repairs or restoration. That depends on what's showing. I mean, if you're showing a marking, you know, a discontinued post office, an express marking, I mean, so long as the marking is clear, anything that's done to the rest of the cover is only going to make it better, not worse. Now, if you're, sho- if you're showing a cover where it's a rare stamp, if you get a number five on cover, well, the stamp needs to be as nice as possible. You know, it, but you know, if, if you're showing a rare, you know, rare marking, the stamp is damaged, eh, not a big deal. It's not going to affect the value terribly much, unless it's obtrusive. If the stamp is half torn off, well, that's a different issue. But 
I once sold the discovery copy of Nevada Town on a picture postcard where the stamp was torn off. Still sold for $500. Alas, now it's only worth about a little over $100, but that's life. Well, that, that's the difference between having the discovery copy, <laughs> none known, yep. and having four or five come out yeah. on the market afterwards. Let's talk about another aspect of, of, of cover forgeries. Um, there was a famous American dealer whose, uh, um, whose uh, name was John A. Fox, oh. who was known for Ooh. making a number of very, very expensive classic covers, including an, any number of, of, of the great-looking Confederate covers and also great-looking classics, and also any number, of the, any number of the rare patriotic covers he made. And he used the stamps of the period. He had cancelers of the period. And uh, so uh, I, I'm sure anybody who's, been, anybody who's dealt with covers has been victimized by a fox fake at one time or another. Well, I can tell you this was early 90s, not too long after I moved to Las Vegas. There was a dealer-slash-collector... Wheeler dealer from uh, San Diego who had a bunch of these covers and apparently he must have bought an auction lot of a fake, you know, a fake of uh, John Fox fakes and I got bit by one and then I bought a Texas Confederate cover and it was beautiful and I paid him three or four or five hundred dollars, whatever it was. I got home and said, uh-oh. The stamp wasn't issued on the date of the cover. <laughs> now, he kind of knew what he was doing, so he gave me my money back. But, I mean, he wound up passing an awful lot of stuff. Um, there was, you know, Jim, you would know the story of the, you know, of the um, fake Carson City and Utah territories uh, that came out. And another Nevada collector named Ted Gruber was able to determine that these were fake because... The wrong font was used for the day, for the month and day. Mm -hmm. So, there, yeah, Nevada. There are several um, very poorly done Nevada fakes. Um, by that I mean there was there was a guy up in uh, northern Nevada that was uh, antique dealer and didn't know an awful lot about stamp collecting. So his fakes um, always like he'd have a. a uh, four bar, and it'd be the wrong one. You know, any anybody that uh, knew the, knew the periods of use of the different devices would know it was fake. So yeah, th there's there's all kinds of skullduggery out there, and the problem the problem with John Fox is he also sold good covers, and so you you could have a John Fox cover in your collection and it's okay because he was selling legitimate covers too. Yeah, you, there's a number of covers of his that are perfectly okay that he signed to authenticate them. Right. But uh, um, it's a it's a very unfortunate situation when somebody who's an expert cuz he was an expert in this area and and but got into trouble uh, got into trouble and then started to manufacture the counterfeits. I don't um, um, I mean, for better or worse, it doesn't happen as much as it used to because prices aren't as high as they were for a lot of these <laughs> things 25 or 30 years ago. Now, at least with you know, you know, discontinued post offices and postmarks, right. the now, market is not what it once was. Now, there was a, there was a dealer in Florida uh, who was dealing in postal history and actually had an auction for a number of years 
who was actually enhancing the cancels. He would actually pencil in and actually, and actually draw them in. And uh, it wasn't until Richard Frajola attended a sale and actually drew a pencil, uh, drew an eraser, one of the plastic erasers, right through the marking, and the marking almost completely disappeared. Mm -hmm. And we figured that the, the whole sale was like that. But um, that's an area of that's an area where it's actually a form of fraud. Yeah. So actually, in that case, uh, erasing the cover is a way of expertizing. Yeah, there's a number two pencil pretty well approximates a typical postmark in the early 20th century in terms of color. Yeah. Yeah, you'd, you, the, the thing about the um, enhancing the postmark is that most of the time <coughs> it's done to deceive you. And th that, because town marks, I mean, like... I'm trying to think of a really rare Nevada town. I can't come up in my mind right now, but let's just say Alpine. Alpine is a fairly rare Nevada town. But there's Alpines in all kinds of states. And if so if you can find a, an Alpine cover from Minnesota or something, and then you can change the MIN to Nevada or something and – you have a more rare cover. So you, though, that's what you have to look for. Yeah, yeah so... A box of 25 or so I, uh, ambiguous postmarks. Yeah. You just don't know what state they're from. Right. Well, Jim, you have a collection of Nevada Express covers. Don't you prefer, with the with those covers, don't you t tend to want them with some sort of a certificate of authenticity? Yeah, it, it depends on the... the um, Obviously, the Pony Express covers and those kinds of covers, you need to have a certificate on those. And they're worth getting them because they're very collectible outside of just Nevada. Um, and then uh, most most of the uh, covers that are – the Express covers are um, known entities. Um, in, at least in my Nevada – book, I went through and and made a index up of all the, uh, or a census of all the known uses. And so, and, and, and obviously any census doesn't have everything on it. And so you, you can't just say because it's not on the census that it's not real. But it also gives you uh, an idea. I mean, they, they come from a certain correspondence. Um, they, they are within a certain period of time, that kind of thing. So there's ways of authenticating them to where you don't need a, a, an advanced collector. Somebody who's done a little study doesn't necessarily need to have a certificate. You're now, being your own expert. Yeah. Yeah. We need your help. Nothing on the internet is free, including our phone and internet connections. So you can support the podcast by joining the Stamp Show Here Today Club. The cost is $10 for a lifetime membership. Please include your APS member number as we are an APS-affiliated club. Your support is greatly appreciated. Our brand new spanking address is 5965 Harrison Drive, Suite 6 in Las Vegas, Nevada, 89120. You left out the word glorious. Fabulous. 
<laughs> because you don't put that on the letter. Oh. Well, you could. You could, yeah. You could, yeah. Well, kids, that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank Sideshow Mel, Corporal Punishment, Tina Ballerina, oh, and from Not Landing, Miss Donna Mills. Oh, she was a sport. We've had lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of fun, but now the time has come to go. If this still clown was found dead in his bed tomorrow, I'd be in heaven still doing this show. See you some other time! You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, seeking to advance all levels of the stamp collecting hobby through news, information, and collecting advice. Visit us at stampshowheretoday.com to listen to the show, view images of the items we are talking about, and read the show notes. You can also continue the conversation on Facebook at Stamp Show Here Today and on Twitter at Stamp Show HT. If you have questions or comments about the show or have any topics you would like us to discuss, you can email us at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep collecting. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.